out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good almost afternoon on a Friday. I have two little shows booked for today just to get get the, the amount of content pushed out. I realize I have more book than I do time, so I'm going to have to do more book. That's those are the breaks. Got to do more book. So, um, so I found some some time at 11:30, and I can get some listeners. So I'm going to go ahead and invite all the people. Invite, invite, invite. Okay, and if you know of people in your group, you can send them the show. Just send them this room, and just invite them to come and listen. It's mostly going to be a listening session. Uh, we are reading Nils Meltzer. got the battery on this part of this was me i i uh (laughs) i uh i lost the book so i was was just a tad late so this is the trial of julian assange a story of persecution by nils melzer chapter two wikileaks role in society collateral murder when war becomes real it was only in 2010 that I took proper notice of WikiLeaks, a disclosure platform that obtains classified information from whistleblowers and other sources and guarantees them anonymity, that is, protection from exposure and prosecution. WikiLeaks makes a point of clarifying that, due to an encrypted tr- data transmission technology preventing their tracing, even the organization itself is unable to identify its sources. Fully dedicated to the cypherpunk slogan, privacy for the weak, transparency for the powerful. I stand by that. I stand by that uh, that creed. That's me personally. So, I might ask them to make a bumper sticker of that. Privacy for the weak and transparency for the powerful. So thus, starting in 2006, a publicly accessible archive of previously secret documents was created, and its growing content soon became came to be feared by powerful governments, corporations, and organizations. Early revelations exposed, for example, the corruption of the Kenyan government, toxic waste dumping by the Trafigura Corporation on the Ivory Coast, the methods of Scientology, the U.S. Army's guidelines for the treatment of Guantanamo detainees, and the dubious business practices of the Swiss bank Julius Bayer. First hits, but nothing compared to the overwhelming power of what was to come. On April 5th of 2010, at Washington National's Press Club, Julian Assange presented collateral murder to the world. The 18-minute video opened with a quote from George Orwell. Political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable, and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. After that, nothing but disturbing images in black and white. Collateral murder places a viewer inside a U.S. combat helicopter circling at low altitude over a residential area of Baghdad. It is the July 12, 2007, just another day, and a deplorable war of occupation. The news coverage of which has been dominated almost exclusively by the Western military coalition. Now, suddenly, viewers are immersed on board the helicopter and see everything from the real-time perspective of the gunner. Radio messages go back and forth. Somewhere on the ground, out of sight, American troops are on the move, and the area is being searched from the air for insurgents and other potential threats. 
Suddenly the helicopter crew reports about 20 men standing about on the road in several small groups. Then they appear on the screen, all of them wearing civilian clothing, and most are visibly unarmed. Two of the men have something slung across their shoulders, which, judging by shape and size, clearly cannot be rifles. It later turns out that they are journalists carrying photo cameras. Another two men appear to be carrying assault rifles or similar long barrel firearms. All of the men move around unsuspectingly, talk to each other. Some open street. It is obvious that they are not about to take cover or prepare an ambush. Other pedestrians also seem to be going about their everyday business. No one seems to notice the two helicopters. The crew reports over the radio have five to six individuals AK-47s, Kalashnikov-type assault rifles. Request permission to engage. A few seconds later, the permission to open fire arrives, but at the last moment, due to the flight path, a building intrudes between the cannon and the group of people. While the helicopter circles in the distance and moves back into position, a journalist-raised telephoto lens is mistaken for a rocket-propelled grenade, RPG ready to fire. Shortly thereafter, the line of sight is clear and the gunner opens fire. Ten men are literally mowed down. Some try to escape, but the gunner intercepts them with the next volley. After less than 30 seconds, all of them are dead or seriously wounded on the ground. The helicopter continues to circle the attack site, and the troops can be heard commenting, Ha ha, I hit them. Oh yeah, look at those dead bastards. Nice! Good shot! Thank you. A few moments later, a seriously wounded man comes into view. He is trying to crawl to safety, but he can hardly move. There's one guy moving down there, but he's wounded, the crew reports. Roger, we're going to move down there. The ground troops reply. Roger, we'll cease fire. The crew assures in response. Apparently, there was initially every intention of rescuing the injured man as required by the law of war. Shortly thereafter, the crew reports back. He's getting up. Maybe he has a weapon down in his hand. No, I haven't seen one yet. The wounded man almost pushes himself up to his knees, but immediately collapses again. Come on, buddy, the gunner comments, aiming the crosshairs at his helpless target. All you gotta do is pick up a weapon. But the wounded man won't do him the favor. Will emerge that he is a 40-year-old Reuters journalist, Saeed Shema. Less than a minute later, a, civil, a civilian minibus appears on the scene. The driver gets out and, together with two other men, tries to evacuate the wounded man. All three rescuers wear civilian clothing and are clearly unarmed. Agitated, the helicopter crew reports, We have a van approaching, possibly picking up bodies and weapons. Can I shoot? A few seconds later comes a clarification request that will be decisive for the legal assessment. Picking up the wounded? Yeah, we're trying to get permission to engage. Come on, let's shoot. The wounded man is being carried to the minibus. Then authorization to open fire is given. The minibus is literally shot to pieces with the helicopter's 30mm gun. The driver and the two other rescuers are killed instantly. His five-year-old daughter and ten-year-old son are seriously injured in the back seat of the minibus. They reportedly had been on their way to school with their father. Chama himself dies from his injuries shortly afterwards. He too, father of four. The soldiers congratulate each other once again on a job well done as if it were a team sport. When the ground troops arrive on the scene and report that the child has been wounded, the crew only comments, Ah, damn, oh well. And then, after a pause, that must have been weighed down by heavy doubt. Well, it's their fault for bringing their kids into a battle. That's right. A 
according to U.S. military officials, an AK-47 assault rifle, an RPG rocket launcher with two grenades, and the cameras of the two killed Reuters journalists are later found at the scene. Collateral murder, a war crime? Question mark. Whether the conduct shown in the collateral murder video amounts to a war crime and who bears personal responsibility for it should be for a count of law to decide. However, given that no such judicial assessment has ever taken place, the question rightly arises as to how this omission by the U.S. authorities should be classified. Was it lawful acts of war that had been taken out of context and unfairly dramatized by WikiLeaks? Or were the U.S. authorities indeed responsible for covering up a murder? When in the following I provide my personal views on this question, I am not concerned with determining the criminal culpability or innocence of individual soldiers. Rather, I would like to raise questions of the government's good faith right from the outset and sharpen the reader's eye to it. For the question of the good faith of public authorities runs like a red thread through the entire Assange case and even in complex circumstances, always provides external observers with reliable, objective guidance. When a comment on the collateral murder video from the perspective of the law of war, I am not infallible, of course, but I do so nonetheless with a certain amount of expertise and experience. As former legal, legal advisor and delegate to the International Committee for the Red Cross, ICRC, and as a professor of international law, I have spent more than 20 years intensively studying the practice of the law of war, particularly the rules of governing the use of force during military engagements. I have analyzed hundreds of operations, both on paper and on the ground in various contexts of war. I have not only written books and academic articles on the subject, I have also seen the destruction and suffering of war with my own eyes, and have spoken with the responsible operational forces and polit politicians as well, as with witnesses, survivors, and relatives of the victims. And I have led a seven-year international expert process for the ICRC, clarifying the conditions under which civilians lose their protection under the law of war and become legitimate military targets. The key question arising in a legal analysis of collateral murder the basic rules of the law of war relevant to this case sounds simple. Soldiers and other combatants may be attacked, civilians may not. Once combatants have fallen out of combat due to wounds or for other reasons they may no longer be attacked but, me, bus, but must be collected and cared for regardless of their legal status or affiliation. Civilians may lose their protection only if and for such time as they directly participate in hostilities. Also protected are medical and rescue personnel who are not themselves actively participating in hostilities, whether they are civilians or members of enemy forces. They may even carry pistols, assault rifles, and other light weapons for purposes of self-defense and the protection of the wounded. Rescue personnel may also collect and transport personal weapons of wounded combatants evacuated by them, provided such weapons are no longer used in combat. In all these cases, any person must be presumed to be protected in case of doubt, and therefore may be attacked only once it is clear that the required legal criteria are fulfilled, either combatant status or direct participation in hostilities in military parlance. This is called positive identification, PID. Now that we have established the basics of the law of war, let us take another look at collateral murder.
The operational context is that two Apache attack helicopters are searching from the air for insurgents that might attack their ground forces. Contrary to what the image resolution might suggest, the helicopters are not circling a mere 300 feet above the scene, but at a distance of approximately one mile. And the screen image is captured through a highly sensitive and automatically controlled telephoto lens. This means that the soldiers cannot take a quick look through the window to pick up additional details, but must rely on the screen image and moreover interpret it in real time. Unlike us, they do not have the luxury of repeatedly reviewing the same scenes and have to make split-second decisions as to whether they have identified a threat to the ground troops that need to be neutralized. The permissibility of an attack must therefore always be judged by what can and must be reasonably be expected of a soldier acting correctly under prevailing circumstances. Now the operation is not taking place above an open battlefield, but above a residential district of Baghdad, a densely populated area where most of the population necessarily consists of protected civilians. As can be seen from the length and contrast of the shadows on the ground, it is broad daylight and visibility is clear. There are no armed confrontations in progress and no curfew appears to have been imposed. In an environment like this, and at this time of day, the soldiers must expect to see civilians out on the street everywhere. Since the U.S.-British invasion, public order in Iraq has largely broken down. Because of the constant threat of looting, the American occupation forces in 2003 explicitly authorized Iraqi civilians to possess assault rifles for crime prevention purposes. By 2007, Kalashnikovs were so widespread in Iraqi private households that even the public carrying a few isolated weapons without more could not be interpreted as an expression of hostile intent. While this admittedly does not apply to RPG rocket launchers, in the present case, Permission to engage clearly had been given already on the basis of the rather casual suspicion of five to six persons with AK-47s. Only the confusion of a camera with a rocket launcher, which occurred after the authorization to open fire, could potentially be interpreted as an honest, albeit mistaken, identification of a hostile intent. But even this alleged rocket launcher is nowhere in sight as the moment of the attack and neither is the assault rifle. In the given circumstances, there is obviously no risk of an imminent attack on the helicopter or the ground troops, and the status of the targeted men is doubtful at best. Consequently, there is no basis for claiming the positive identification of a legitimate target or imminent threat as required for a lawful attack. In this situation, any law-abiding shooter would have to have... have to at least pause and try to get a clearer picture. The fact that instead 10 evidently unarmed men are mass massacred can at best be considered a reckless, unprofessional, and irresponsible mistake true to the slogan, shoot first, ask questions later. At worst, this stage of the attack already amounts to a, the deliberate killing of presumably protected persons and thus already constitutes a war crime. If the first attack was reckless at best, the second is criminal without question. As the radio transmissions show, the soldiers are fully aware that they cannot lawfully attack the wounded Jamaa. 
but they are clearly looking for a pretext, almost begging him to reach for a weapon that would allow them to shoot him. As soldiers deploy in a war context, they must know that medical personnel and other non-combatant rescuers are protected under the law of war, regardless of any official identification or affiliation with a medical service. In the present case, it is obvious that Chama's unarmed rescuers are only concerned with life-saving measures. Under the law of war, the rescue of the wounded cannot be considered a hostile act, even when, unlike here, their personal weapons are also collected in the process. In any case, American ground forces would arrive on the scene moments later and could easily have brought the situation under control. Against this disputed factual background, the attack on the wounded Chama and his rescuers cannot be qualified as a negligent error but almost amounts to a deliberate war crime. The soldiers knew it, their commanders knew it, and so did U.S. Department of Defense. The fact that internal investigation conducted by U.S. Army Command nonetheless concluded that the soldiers had acted in compliance with the laws of war and declared case closed without any criminal prosecution of the perpetrators, let alone any compensation payments to the surviving relatives, is deeply disturbing. By taking this path, the superiors in charge not only became personally complicit in a war crime, they also betrayed the law of their own country, the reputation of their own armed forces, and the trust and security of their own people. Had the U.S. government had its way, the American public would never have known about this murder because the video was destined to vanish forever into the black hole of state secrets. Just like the Pentagon Papers that exposed the government's deliberate deception of the American public during the Vietnam War. Just like the torture videos that the CIA director, Gina Haspel, ordered to be destroyed when she was still commanding an American black site in Thailand. Just like the unpublished photos from Abu Ghraib prison, which reportedly showed the sadistic torture, rape, and humiliation of defenseless prisoners in repulsive detail. Just like the full U.S. Senate committee report, which over 7,000 pages exposes the personal and institutional responsibilities for the CIA's systemic torture practices. None of this may lawfully be disclosed to the American public and certainly not to the entire world. For the chain of criminal responsibilities for these offenses does not end with the lower ranks of those doing the dirty work, but leads to finely furnished officers with thick carpets. So the public is shamelessly lied to. Officially, the secrecy aims to protect the national security and decent men and women in uniform, not to ensure the impunity of murderers, torturers, rapists, and above all, their superiors. Officially, it is the whistleblowers exposing war crimes who are called traitors to the country, not the war criminals and their superiors. Officially, it is the journalists publishing evidence of war crimes who are accused of acting irresponsibly, not the secretive authorities suppressing such evidence. Officially, any proven perpetrators are described as isolated bad apples, not as scapegoats for systemic shortcomings. The public at large happily swallows the official narrative. I didn't happily swallow anything, do you? You know, send a comment. The, ha the public happily swallows the official narrative because acknowledging the reality of a broader systemic failure would be too threatening, too unsettling, too much work. It is the, this tendency towards lethargy, conformity, and self-deception which is responsible for the failure of what arguably is the most famous WikiLeaks slogan, if wars can be started by lies, they can be ended by the truth. 
Unfortunately, as a general rule, the problem is not that we do not know the truth, but that we do not want to know it. On the difference between confidentiality and secrecy. Collateral murder shook the world public opinion. The video gives but a glimpse of the daily slaughter in the Iraq war, yet makes it almost unbearably real. Every second of the clip virtually screams at us, look, this is the face, this is the real face of war. From now on, you can't say you didn't know. From now on, you are informed and therefore you are also responsible for what your government does with your tax money. Gone are the days when you were still able to blindly believe that the official narratives disseminated at press conferences on government websites and in Sunday speeches, but collateral murder was just the beginning of a veritable flood of WikiLeaks revelations still to be published in 2010. In accomplishing the task, Assange cooperated with prestigious daily and weekly newspapers, most notably the New York Times, The Guardian, Der Spiegel, Le Monde, and El País. The sheer volume of the material to be processed required the support of professional journalistic organizations, 90,000 documents with field reports from the Afghanistan war, several hundred thousand from the Iraq war, and starting from November, a quarter of a million diplomatic cables sent by U.S. Embassy employees in just about every country in the world. Importantly, on Assange's instructions, all these publications were preceded by a rigorous harm reduction process in which names of potentially endangered persons were individually censored. Thus, when the Afghan War Diary was published in July 2010, Assange withheld some 15,000 documents in order to give the U.S. government and the NATO-led International Security Assistance Force, ISAF, time to identify sensitive data that needed to be redacted. It was only one year later after the publication by two Guardian journalists of the password to original unredacted documents encrypted by WikiLeaks that Assange decided to also publish the relevant documents in unredacted form himself. We will discuss this in more detail at a later stage. Personally, I took note of the WikiLeaks publications at the time, of course, but I was not as shocked by their contents as the general public was, because much of it, and then some, I had already knew. For more than a decade, I had been dealing with the reality of war day in and day out at the ICRC and had also experienced it in my own flesh and soul in the Balkans, the Middle East, and Afghanistan. When WikiLeaks broke the silence, I fe felt a sense of relief. Finally, I thought some something would change and the world would no longer be able to look the other way. At the ICRC, we always treated the information we collected with strict confidentiality. This was a matter of life and death both for the war victims and for us. In a war context, there is little protection. There are no police enforcing law and order, and witnesses to war crimes are a nuisance that can be easily eliminated. So unless all warring parties can be certain that the ICRC will not go public with its information, it would simply be impossible for the organization to carry out its humanitarian mission deep inside zones of conflict. That is why ICRC staff are explicitly exempted from testifying before the International Criminal Court in The Hague. There is no viable alternative to this exemption because once an ICRC delegate testifies in war crimes trial, warring parties worldwide would immediately question whether they could continue to grant the organization access to prisoners of war and civilian war victims and whether delegates who already know too much 
should perhaps be made to suffer some tragic accident rather than allowing them to escape with their knowledge. Beyond strict respect for confidentiality, constant communication also had to be maintained with all parties to the conflict. Thus, in Afghanistan, the address books of our phones not only listed the mobile numbers of the ISAF commanders, but also those of the Taliban leaders. Every movement outside the capital had to be coordinated with all concerned parties. Every change in the situation had to be detected, reported, and assessed. After all, too many colleagues had already paid the ultimate price for their humanitarian mission, whether in Hindu Kush, the Congo, or Chechnya. The resulting golden rule for our public communication was, we say what we do, but not what we see. This is not to say that in our confidential dialogue with the warring parties, we limited ourselves to diplomatic niceties. On the contrary, thanks to the confidentiality of our exchange, we could communicate openly and clearly, and if necessary, could even play hardball at times. We always had to strike a delicate balance between uncompromising toughness and pragmatic realism. Whenever we notice that the authorities exploited our commitment to confidentiality as cover for their own inaction, we would very quickly move the dialogue on to the next hierarchical level, all the way up to the state leadership. If that also failed, we began to involve friendly third countries, still on a confidential basis. Our last resort, the public press release, was used extremely rarely, usually after years of unsuccessful work behind the scenes. What, then, is the difference between confidentiality and secrecy? To put it simply, secrecy is not not only withholds certain facts from public knowledge, but also removes those facts from judicial oversight and potential, sa potential sanctions. Shall I read that again? I'll just read that again. Secrecy not only withholds certain facts from public knowledge, but also removes those facts from judicial sorry, judicial oversight and potential sanctions. Someone called in. <laughs> it creates a legal vacuum. I've worked for well over two decades inside the international system, and I've come to the conclusion that this type of secrecy, which shields entire areas of state activity from the purview of the public, is neither necessary or acceptable. There can be no justification for ever exempting any sphere of governance from public knowledge and oversight. Doing so always opens up the door to abuse and inevit inevitably leads to cover-ups for crimes, exploitation, and corruption. What we do need, however, is confidentiality both in a diplomatic and in, a, in an individual sense. Diplomatic confidentiality creates a protected framework for negotiations inspections, and other confidence-building measures aimed at de-escalating tensions and maintaining or restoring a lawful institution. If this goal cannot be achieved within a reasonable time frame, then diplomatic confidentiality loses its justification and can easily turn into secrecy and complicity. We also need individual confidentiality, such as privacy, source protection, and personal personality rights all of which have nothing to do with secrecy and do not exempt protected individual from oversight and accountability under the law. 
I believe we are generally too optimistic about our own ability to behave lawfully without oversight in the long term. As human beings, we are all primarily driven by perceived short-term self-interest. This is an expression of our neurobiological and psychosocial nature and manifests regardless of status, education, over and above cultural, religious, or ideological factors. It is therefore not a moral question, but a scientific fact that must be duly taken into account when shaping our legal, political, and economic governance systems. Basic constitutional principles such as democracy, the separation of powers, and the rule of law, for example, reflect a realistic assessment of our inherently limited ability to faithfully exercise governmental power entrusted to us without effective constraints and oversight. But the constitutional codification and institutional implementation of such basic principles is not sufficient to mitigate the weaknesses of human nature. Even if we are fortunate enough to live in a democracy, our electoral and legislative processes are already so distorted by campaign financing and lobbying schemes that the legitimate interests of the voting population hardly ever find genuine representation. The rule of law, in turn, can be can only be effective if the executive branch is properly subject to independent and impartial judicial oversight. In reality, however, the rifts separating the three branches of government are always far shallower than those separating the authorities from all three branches from the general population. Officials know each other personally, they have lunch together, value good relations, share information, consult informally, and avoid stabbing one another in the back. In other words, they behave exactly as decent people are expected to behave. In practice, though, their mutual impartiality has already largely been undermined. In the context of daily administrative routine, this phenomenon tends to be harmless and can even help avoid bureaucratic inefficiencies. However, as soon as the reputation and essential interests of the influential stakeholders are concerned, it almost always causes collusion, corruption, and system failure, up to and including the worst of crimes, the banality of evil, as Hannah Arendt so aptly put it. As a result of the failure or deliberate obstruction of the U.S. military's oversight mechanisms, the war crime documented in collateral murder was never prosecuted or compensated. Several U.S. Iraq veterans subsequently confirmed that the operation in question was not a singular exception and such massacres were commonplace at that time without anyone ever being held to account. The resulting impunity has consolidated a culture of tolerance towards violent crime that has become almost impossible to cor correct. <clears throat> <coughs> <Sorry>. The appalling <laughs> sense of entitlement with which defenseless African-American George Floyd was publicly choked to death by police police officers in Minneapolis on the 25th of May 2020 is a direct consequence of decades of American leniency towards its own criminals in uniform. The same misguided policy is also reflected in the aggressive stance on the US of the US towards the International Criminal Court and its employees, as if war crimes could ever be undone by the suppression of evidence and intimidation of judges. As I have stressed in my annual report to the General Assembly in 2021, A-76-168, uh, the only way to end collusion and impunity 
is through strict transparency and systematic enforcement of personal and institutional accountability. This, of course, is precisely the political agenda of WikiLeaks. Okay, with that, I'm going to take a small break. back. So we're reading The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution, Chapter 2, WikiLeaks, Role in Society. WikiLeaks as a safety valve. In my view, WikiLeaks can be described as a social, societal safety valve. When an employee working for a government or corporation witnesses wrongdoing, they may initially look the other way. If the misconduct is serious enough, their silence will eventually give rise to an unbearable moral dilemma until they conclude, I can't take it anymore. I can't keep my knowledge to myself. I need to find a way to free myself from this moral burden. If the government or corporation fail to offer internal structures and procedures through which such legal and moral grievances can adequately be remedied, then eventually the pressure grows too great and blows the alarm whistle on the safety valve. The employee literally becomes a whistle blower. WikiLeaks provides a mechanism that guarantees such whistleblowers absolute anonymity. Thus, through the safety valve of WikiLeaks, information finds its way through to the public. Unlike traditional journalism, such information is minimally edited. Contrary to what is often claimed, information that could expose individuals to danger, and which is not otherwise publicly available, is redacted by WikiLeaks. Everything else is generally made available in the form of unredacted originals. In 2010, the media partners associated with WikiLeaks provided valuable support in separating public interest information from trivialities. At the same time, it, is also, it also became apparent that traditional journalism no longer fulfilled the indispensable societal functions of the Fourth Estate monitoring the checks and balances between the branches of government, informing the public about systemic shortcomings and their implications for the average citizen, and thus 
enabling the latter to take the necessary remedial action through the democratic process. Even an organization committed to full transparency must, of course, act responsibly. It must be emphasized, however, that the U.S. government has never offered any evidence for its claim that people have been endangered by the WikiLeaks disclosures. In fact, in 2010, the U.S. Vice President Joe Biden even acknowledged during a session of the U.N. Security Council that WikiLeaks publications had caused no substantive damage other than being embarrassing for the United States government. In reality, of course, these leaks were far beyond embarrassing. They endangered the impunity of officials on all levels of the chain of command for war crimes, torture, and corruption. Like any safety valve, WikiLeaks is not the problem, but merely a visible symptom of a more deep-rooted shortcoming. The real problem is always the crimes, not the fact that they are being revealed. And yet, precisely the contrary is being communicated to the public. By its very existence, WikiLeaks calls into question an entire, entire government system based on secrecy, a way of doing business that has become a deeply entrenched secret duplicate diplomatic notes, blurred lines between private and public interest, routine corruption, cronyism, and abuse of power. Had the crimes revealed by WikiLeaks been prosecuted and redressed in good faith, it might have then have been possible and appropriate to initiate a balanced discussion about the accountability of whistleblowers and journalists. But when murderers, torturers, and their superiors go unpunished, Whereas nonviolent truth tellers like Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange, and Edward Snowden are prosecuted and threatened with sanctions normally reserved for perpetrators of the most serious crimes, then any presumption of good faith on the part of the authorities have been effectively disproved. Democratically elected governments, unwilling to be held accountable for crimes and misconduct, fear nothing more than the unrestrained transparency promoted by WikiLeaks. Hence, their excessively aggressive reaction and the ferocity with which people like Manning, Assange, and Snowden are being persecuted. None of this is happening because of any real-world harm caused by these dissidents. After all, no one was seriously endangered, no government went bankrupt, and no war was lost. The only real threat posed by WikiLeaks is, it, is that its challenges the impunity of the powerful. In order to prevent this idea from spreading through the establishment of second, third, or hundredth WikiLeaks, potential emulators must be intimidated worldwide. This is why the methodology of WikiLeaks is persecuted and punished in the person of Assange. The spotlight no longer illuminates the official misconduct revealed by WikiLeaks, but is pointed exclusively at the messenger. He is declared a rapist, a hacker, a spy, and a narcissist who is trying to evade justice and is not entitled to the protections of press freedom. Obediently, public opinion follows the guiding spotlight and discusses avidly and freely about Julian Assange, his cat, and his skateboard. To some he is a hero, to others a villain. But to the powerful, this question is irrelevant. To them, only one thing matters that the real elephant in the room, their own dirty secrets, has been suspects, blah, sorry, 
has been su successfully blanked out and vanished back into the darkness of our collective amnesia. Well, maybe I am elephantine in the fact that I have not forgotten at all. I'll never forget. I don't forget. I don't forget what happened. So, um, if anybody is with us, we have Omar, Greg, Daniel, Veronica, and Joshua. Would anybody like to call in and add their comments before we wrap up? We're at 40 minutes in the, in the, uh, the call. So I'll just ask, going once, going twice, would anybody like to call in? Looks good? Okay, guys. Well, that has been Chapter 2, WikiLeaks' Role in Society, a reading from The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution. Thank you for your attendance. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast Archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Call-In. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.